0: Welcome to the Commons Cast. We're glad to have you here. We hope you find something meaningful in our teaching this week. Head to commons.church for more information. Hello here. My name is Scott. If we have met personally, and I am part of our pastoral team here at Commons, and I spend most of my time here in our Inglewood Parish, which you are currently sitting in, which, some of you may not know, that when we run our Stampede Breakfast in a few short weeks, This parish will be celebrating a year and a half here in Inglewood, which is super exciting because, of course, we are thrilled about the way that our connections with each other are continuing to grow and develop, and we love to see the ways that worship and service in new neighborhoods actually changes us and shapes the imagination of our neighbors and the way that they think about what the church is, but we are also aware of how organic community is and how challenging it is to do the work of building an us. Which is why it's so important sometimes to zoom out every now and again and celebrate how, with each passing week, this journey that we're on together moves us along toward local, grounded expressions of grace where we don't just offer prayers and host dinners and we don't just come to church or host stampede events, but we realize that participating in community actually shapes us. And as it does that, it has a way of working its way into our friendships and our neighborhoods, our city and beyond. And we are going to talk a little bit more about our shared life together today as we finish up this conversation about habit that we've been having, but first, a quick look back. Because a couple weeks ago, we started out by trying to come up with some sense of what our theology of habit might be. And how, so often for many of us, our perspective on our virtues and our vices is often caught between this pressure to be more efficient and be more healthy and be more affluent And then on this other side we have the scriptures which are giving us these direct commands and prescriptions and often our life between these two things feels like a challenge. And then last week we jumped into this discussion of how we might live out a spirituality of habit. And we tried to give you some handles to help each and every one of us as we discern and choose individual practices that we need maybe to let go of and others maybe that we need to pick up and I hope you found some of that helpful, whether it was coming to grips with James Smith's contention that every single habit we have is turning us into a certain kind of person. And this realization is such a crucial step towards self-awareness, which is the best fuel for building good habits, the scientists tell us. Or maybe you felt drawn to investigate Gretchen Rubin's pillars for habit strategy. We only had time to look at one of these last week, what she calls monitoring, which basically just is taking and keeping personal inventories, counting the amount of rest we get, or the money we spend, or the carbs we eat, or the hours we waste, keeping track so that we have an accurate picture of who we actually are and of what needs to change. But we also talked about, when we we're talking about Ruben's insight here, we talked about this need to cultivate the practice, not just of counting our vices, but counting the good, keeping an inventory of how the divine has been present to us, keeping track of the ways that we've shifted or how our key relationships might be changing, taking time to measure the places that we've grown because the gratitude that this kind of counting brings to us, or what it does, it forms in us a strength and a tenacity for the changes that we still need to make. And then finally, we picked up this somewhat challenging statement that an early Christian writer named James uses. And in it, he describes some of our human experience, how we sometimes are led astray by our desires, the things we want. And when those things get full grown in our lives, they give birth to brokenness, which in turn leads to death and attrition in parts of our lives. And we talked a little bit about how that downward spiral metaphor that James uses, that might parallel the way that some of you might feel about your habits which makes sense because we know that our brains form strong habits through a cycle of a cue or a trigger and then the routine response that we conduct and then the reward that we receive. And this is a cycle that researchers have shown can be exploited and made powerful when informed by our cravings. Remember we talked about Cinnabon. Or our desires. And the catch for the word desire there that James uses is actually this, the fact that it's a neutral term, which just means that for all of us, our desires aren't always the problem. In fact, our desires on their own are often quite benign. And this means that for many of us to combat or to build habits, perhaps we just need to spend more energy on understanding or owning our desires than on fighting the consequences. For example, learning how to own our longing for affection and give it attention, stay awake to it, seeking help when it overwhelms us and preventing it from creating toxic and unhealthy patterns that we might use to deal with it. But also, learning to see that all of our desires are opportunities to start new Maybe to try a different spiritual practice or choose a fresh form of recovery or replace patterns from your past with different cravings along the way, learning that in fact, some of your desires, when full grown, will give birth to wholeness, to habits of work and rest that strengthen you and to practices of friendship and creativity that expand your soul and to rhythms of life that inform your spirituality of habit, helping you to flourish in this world. Now, today we move from theology and our individual habits to this conversation about habit and community. But first, let's pray, and as we do, I'm going to borrow some language from St. Hildegard on this Pentecost Sunday, so join me now. God of all creating, redeeming, sustaining spirit. You are the fiery life of the divine and you burn in the beauty of the fields and in the sun-drenched mountains. and You shine in the water and in the rain and you burn in the sun, the moon and stars that light our way. And with churning, carrying wind, you quicken all things. On this Pentecost day, we celebrate how the fire of the divine has leaped from the hearth of our religion and our control out into the world. In Jesus' friends, it fueled their storytelling and their love for each other. And in us, we hope it does the same today. So where we feel that our path has strayed from you, Spirit, would you light the way home? and where we feel caught in some darkness maybe, of mind or of relationship, or maybe even in our own bodies today, perhaps, Spirit, guide us to your truth. And where we need newness for the sake of our souls and for the sake of the world's deep longing, Spirit, come and be near to us now. We are grateful for this chance to share these moments in community We're thankful for the ways that we are found and known here. Help us to be aware of this grace. We ask in the name of Christ, our hope. Amen. Okay, so when I was a kid, my family was part of a small faith community that wasn't all that different than this one. And my dad was the primary teacher in this community, And at that time, what that meant is that I got dragged to lots of meetings and gatherings, including our regular Sunday night services. That's right, we had church on Sunday morning, we'd go home, we'd eat, we'd have a nap, and then we'd go back for more church in the evening. And some of you may have had this similar experience. It's a lot of church, to be honest. But anyway, because our family often had to show up early in the evenings to open the building and get things ready, at some point my mom decided to take advantage of this extra time. And I think I've mentioned a version of this story here before, how she would take my brother and I, and she would find a small room somewhere in the building that somebody wasn't using, and effectively, she tried to teach us how to pray, To, to engage in simple forms and methods of meditation. And it was pretty straightforward. She would say something like, okay, we're going to pray, and we're going to ask Jesus to speak to us. And then we're going to be quiet, and I want you to listen. And I remember her saying that God's voice was like a whisper, and I remember wondering why God was always trying to tell secrets, but the point is that we did this, and we did it often, and I hated sitting there in the church while my friends were outside playing football, and when I couldn't hear them, I can honestly say I never heard God speak, but Fast forward to this past Mother's Day, just about a month ago, when we played this little animated video of a mom doing all these things with her children. And I put some images up here, maybe this will trip your memory. And at one point in the video, it shows the mom and her child praying together. And no lie, I was sitting right here, I had to stop watching, because this little video hit me with this wave of emotion. I was like, I have to go to the front in a second, I'm gonna be a mess. And later that day, I was chatting with my mom because she doesn't live here in town, and I got choked up again just talking with her. And I was telling her how I was thankful that she had shaped my spiritual life. But I was especially present to how, even though I never heard the divine in some mystical way on those Sunday nights, my mom taught me something. that the divine was present to me in the middle of my life, for sure. But more importantly, What was shaped in me, without me even thinking about it, was a belief that has kept me through challenge and searching and through many of my fiercest questions. And it's the idea that if God is at all, God is good and that God wants to speak. And embedded in this story is this central truth for this conversation we're having about habit. This idea that we have to do things before we can believe them. And for this, I take you back to the words of James Smith, who I cited for you last week. See, Smith stands in a long line of thinkers and philosophers who contend that human beings are primarily desiring imaginative species. And it's this assertion that leads Smith to argue that we live our lives by adopting ultimate ends or goals to aim at. And we make decisions and pursue paths to try and live out some version or vision of the good life that we love and we want to pursue. We imagine the relationships that we want and the status that we want, the markers of success that we think are meaningful. And we often don't mean to pick these things up. They often aren't shaped in us cognitively. Our experiences and our environment shape them in us. But the point is that we pursue these visions with our habits. And this has led Smith and others to ask, well, if our basic rhythms of life are set by what we do, by our desires and how our habits lead us to pursue them, then why is it that the Christian tradition places such a high emphasis on getting people to believe the right things? Why the push to make faithfulness a cognitive practice where we know the right answers to the corresponding questions? And it's those questions that lead to some interesting observations that curiously parallel my experiences as a child. Where Smith suggests that we shouldn't think of Christian faith as a system of beliefs, but as a form or a way of life. Where instead of looking at texts and doctrines and theories of God, we just need to look at what people do. Because think about it. I came to believe that God was good through simple spiritual practice. My faith didn't start from a place of cognitive acceptance, but actually the opposite. It only came to a place of cognitive awareness through practices of my body and my time. And I suspect that this is true for many of you, which is an important place to come to because maybe you have struggled with the intellectual side of faith the cryptic and the snobbish nature of theological language and the the seeming contradiction in holy texts or the rules that religious people try to make, the way that religious organizations sometimes seem to valorize not thinking critically. Or maybe, for you, it's a little bit more personal because you've gone through some difficulty or you've seen someone you love suffer or you are a deeply compassionate person and the injustice of the world troubles you, all of these examples of how we sometimes find ourselves not necessarily all that confident in our beliefs. In our ability to say with conviction, for example, that God is good, or even some days, that God is. And at least in part, what our conversation today offers you in this community and space, is a moment to be where you are and still be with us and with the divine. With the invitation to trust that even as you do community here today, even in these sharing of moments together, this might be a more compelling step of faith for you than what you might claim to believe in this moment. And we're gonna come back to belief before we're done today, so hold on to this idea. Because here's the deal. The fact that our tradition places such a high value on belief, on cognitive processes and agreement, doesn't really match with the earliest stories in the Christian scriptures. The book of Acts actually records that on the day of Pentecost, Jerusalem was transformed by this significant event that happened. Jesus' followers were there, they shared this profound experience where the Spirit came to them. And in the aftermath, Peter gets up and he preaches this sermon and all these people start flocking to the community. And then we read in Acts chapter two that the earliest followers of Jesus, those who had had this experience together, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles and all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anybody who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts and they broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. Now, scholars are pretty unanimous that this is a pretty idyllic representation of what the church in Jerusalem might have looked like. It's all sunshine and rainbows, and as we read the rest of the Christian scriptures and early Christian literature, we actually know that it wasn't like this, but that doesn't mean that we should discount what's here. Because what we see is a picture of the earliest followers of Jesus worshiping and eating and praying and sharing and meeting together, all close to 400 years before doctrinal debate and council would solidify the creeds that we count as Christian orthodoxy. We see these people engaged in practices long before the scriptures that record and describe Jesus' teaching are ever collected into canon. And this is why in places like Philippians 2 and Romans 16, the Apostle Paul appears to have been using early Christian songs or benedictions in his writing, showing us that these practices predated and informed the theology and ideas that Paul was coming up with. And this is an observation that might lead us to agree with James Smith when he says that historic Christian worship is fundamentally formative because it educates our hearts through our bodies. Or put another way, that maybe we should start moving away from this idea that our faith is a system of beliefs that inform our actions, and instead really grapple with how our faith is revealed in what we do, in our liturgy, which is a word that derives from the Greek term liturgia, literally meaning the work of the people. And Smith argues that these shared practices that we do together, these shape our habits, which in turn shape and transform our desires and the ideal form of life that we are pursuing. And I don't know about you, but this gets me thinking about the significance of our liturgies here at Commons, about the work that we do together, and how these things are not just patterns. They aren't rote. They're the cycles of shared living that inform my habits which are turning me into a certain kind of person. Just think of our call to worship. Here at Commons, it's usually offered after we've sung one song together. And in it, the leader calls to us and calls us together where our many stories are brought into a single moment and from the fragmentation of our lived experience and honestly, some of our Sunday mornings, we come from that fragmented place into a moment of focus where we aren't asked to pretend to be anything other than what we are. We aren't asked to fake it, but we are challenged to lift our eyes and offer our affection and for just a moment, maybe for the first time in a long time, to look around us with hope. Or what about our coffee break? And I get it, we transition at that point and our kids make their exodus to a different space, but it's more than that. In fact, I've said to many of you that I think some weeks what we do in that moment is the holiest thing that we could do when we pause from looking at the front and we turn to face one another. Where we observe the divine in the expressions of a friend who's hurting or we extend welcome and warmth to somebody we honestly have never seen before, where we don't just say or believe that worship is communal. No, we do this with our voices and our bodies as we turn and face each other. And I wonder if you've thought about how this liturgy shapes your habits of being. Can you sense in us practicing this every week the invitation to be more hospitable even when you're not here? To be more aware of new faces in your life or to be present to the veiled anxiety in the people that you walk past every day. Or maybe you've experienced a time when during our coffee pause you've been reminded of how you depend on community perhaps. Maybe somebody's inquisitive attention helped you to feel known and seen and that's exactly what you needed. Or what about our invitation to share our stories and confess our fears, to articulate our sorrow as our prayer team is available at the end of every service? And even if you've never stepped into that space, our weekly commitment to create safe spaces of confession where brokenness and loss and compassion and hope, all these things are held, these shape our imagination, I hope because they remind us that we aren't alone. We may have felt alone when we came, and we may be going back into a world where we will feel adrift, but in this moment, by this offering, we are seen and known for our needs as they stand. And perhaps this is slowly shaping in us a desire to always be part of a community that extends that kind of grace. Or what about our shared prayers, where we are Always, almost always reminded that we are global citizens, that we stand far and we stand next to those who are hurting. What about our teaching, which consistently calls us to look at Jesus to see what God is like, which intentionally contends that grace is more powerful and transformative than the law? Can, can you see over your time here at Commons how these teaching practices may have already shaped your habits of how you think about God and think about yourself? Or what about the way that we come to the Eucharist table where we all share and we are all served and we are reminded that young and old, regardless of status or gender or orientation, that we need grace and that we receive it. And I wonder, has coming to an open table, has it made you more open in the rest of your life? Has coming forward to receive this grace made you aware of how grace is an invitation and it's available to you where you are and that you can always move toward it? And I realize that that's a lot of questions And maybe you need to walk away with some of that and reflect on it, that's fine. Because in the end, I hope that you're able to spot some ways that what we do together, our habits and our practices of gathering, how these things are moving you along a spiritual pathway towards a grounded, authentic version of faith. One that might feel new for some of you, and maybe it feels like a long-pursued goal for others of us. The truth is that when we think of things we do this way, we start to see that all the little stuff matters. We see that our commitment to a certain liturgy is actually engagement with a particular kind of work a commitment to the kinds of practices that shape our habits along with the people who are journeying with us. And this might seem self-evident for those of us who might have been around church or religious organizations before, but what might be new to us is how research on habit development helps us understand this in new ways. Charles Duhigg tells a story in his New York Times bestselling book, About Habit. He talks about a group of researchers that were working with individuals struggling with alcohol addiction. And in their interviews with these people, these individuals told the researchers how important it had been for them to identify the cues that led them to these harmful patterns in their life, and how crucial it had been for them to find new routines. And they also said that there was another crucial ingredient where without it, a new future wouldn't have been possible. And they claimed that this ingredient was simply God. And Duhigg notes that these researchers didn't like this because God or spiritual life is, quite frankly, it's an impossible variable to test and account for. And also, these scholars had seen lots of religious people who kept drinking despite being very pious, and so they were understandably quite jaded, but, The comments kept adding up. And so in 2005, a collaborative research group started asking alcoholics about religion and spirituality and correlating this with their observations about relapse and consumption. And it's here that we come back to these thoughts about belief that we shared at the beginning. Because what these researchers found is that people grappling with alcohol use who believed that some higher power was near them were more likely to make it through the stresses that often caused addictive behaviors in others. It wasn't that God mattered so much. It was that the practice of believing that things could get better that made a difference, this study found. These people were just like any other alcoholic that in that on a bad day, when that bad day came around and their new found habits of sobriety were tested, what made the the difference for them, researchers found, is that they believed that they could cope without alcohol. And why do you think that is? Because they had seen somebody else do it. Which is why Alcoholics Anonymous trains people to believe in something higher than themselves until that practice of trust leads them to also believe in community and in themselves. And this is why one of the researchers in this study claimed there's something really powerful about groups and shared experiences. People might be skeptical about their ability to change if they're by themselves, but a group will convince them to suspend disbelief. A community creates belief, she said. Which when you think about it, provides us with this really curious modern lens through which to read that passage from Acts that I showed you earlier. Because the early Christians came alive on Pentecost and the spirit was working in them and around them and they met regularly and they ate together and those who had little were cared for and those who had a lot were less captive to their possessions because they were sharing. They agreed to meet each other in the temple every day. They opened their homes to each other. And yes, our current understanding of habits might remove some of the mysticism and idealism from the story. Because if contemporary researchers are to be trusted, then if these ancient Christian practices, these liturgies, if they really were that generous, and if they really were that welcoming, and if they did encourage each other to pray and push each other towards justice and care, then it's not so hard to see why people were drawn to it. Yes, the Spirit was adding to them daily, but maybe we might say that the work of the people drew them too. Inviting them into a hope that they could be different. Teaching them to do certain things and practice certain things long before they ever believed the right things over time showing these ancient occupants of the city of Jerusalem this myriad of compelling reasons that they should look at Jesus. Each of those reasons found in the life of an everyday person changing, and with each instance, sparking flames of hope kindled by the Spirit that yes, you and I can change too. And that interpretive key opens my imagination wide open. Where, when I think about our practices here at Commons, I ask, what do we teach each other to do? To be warm and to be hospitable, to be thoughtful, to be gracious, to be justice driven? Maybe, maybe that's too idyllic. But I still wanna ask if we're like those first friends of Jesus, where in the doing, what we really believe takes shape. Where week by week, the things we long for start to shift, and our, heart, our hope starts to be expanded, our love for others and for God's creation grows, until one day, we find ourselves believing that change is possible because we've seen it here. I hope that's what we're becoming. And so as we leave this conversation about habit for now, may you find space to be kind to yourself as you work to change, trying to stop some practices and start others. I'm sure many of you are trying to do this. May you carry this idea into the future that good habits are worth pursuing not because they'll make you more successful or more efficient, but because they'll help you be whole. May you grow in self-awareness, paying attention to the desires that fuel your habits, learning to course correct when they lead you astray, yes, but also trusting when they lead you into new paths of wonder and curiosity. in all your work and your pleasure and your rest. And may you sense the invitation to travel with us as a community, not because we're better or superior, but because you find yourself more and more able to believe that the world can change and that you can change as we work together to make it so. And on this Feast of Pentecost, May you be reminded that the Spirit goes with you in it all. Let's pray. God, we come to this moment with uh, honestly a sense of expectation. Because the goodness or your goodness that we declare today. It comes and it fills us. And some of us may be distant from that. That seems like an apparition. We're not quite sure what we can do with that just yet. But for all of us, this call to be part of a community that lives a certain way, I'm convinced that there is some way that each of us can step towards that. I'm grateful that in this moment, Spirit, you know our patterns. You know our rhythms of life. You know what each of us faces. You know what each of us is carrying right now. And this is why I ask for a blessing of your wholeness, that your work in us, we would come to begin measuring it, not by our success, but by the way in which we are brought together and we are integrated. And those of us who may be facing Addiction, those of us who may be facing darkness, those of us who might be facing weakness, I ask that you would give us courage to seek help and that you would give others of us courage to step closer. We're grateful on this day of Pentecost that we can trust that it is the work of your goodness and your grace that changes us and changes the world around us. And so we step into that with hope today as we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.